Welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Philippe de Lamatroc, and Ina Coriel. And I've been doing NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month. And a lot of people who are doing it are doing, like, first uh, drafts of novels, but others, like me, are just doing sprints, which means we set a goal, like... You know, the, the traditional one uh, with NaNoWriMo would be 50,000 words in a month. Um, I decided maybe that's a little bit too much for me, but I didn't want to make it too low either. So I set my goal at 36,000, 1,200 a day. Now, I don't have to write 1,200 a day if I've written more than 1,200 in some days, which looks like today is going to happen that I only wrote 836 but I only needed about 200 to reach my goal overall. So the overall goal today is 15,600. So that's 1,200 times 13. So I needed to write um, 15,600 words by now. And I've actually written 16,273. So yeah, I'm good for the day. So I'm not too worried that I'm not quite sure where the next scene is coming from. I've got a day to figure it out. So that's kind of cool. So I have been doing my whips during NaNoWriMo. So whips are works in progress. W-I-P, work in progress, whip. Um, I have three that are going right now. I technically have four, but one of those is on the back burner simmering indefinitely. I will hopefully pick it up again. I have never ad abandoned a story that I have posted, but for the foreseeable future, it is on the back burner. Now, I did have a story on the back burner for 23 years once, and I still finished it, so it could happen. But the other three that I'm writing are easier to get into, easier to grasp, and then to write. And what you got to do during NaNoWriMo is write. Now, I have been also working on a series of short stories, and I decided I could not continue the short stories during NaNoWriMo. And the reason being, I switch off chapter by chapter by chapter by chapter. So I would go chapter of one, chapter of two, chapter of three rips, short story, chapter of one, chapter of two, chapter of three. But I'd have to think of a short story. What, which story I'm going to choose? I mean, the hard thing about short stories are finding the story. Where does it start? Where does it end? What's the plot in the middle? Where is it going? And you have to know where you're where it's going to go and what it's going to do and all that. Even if just a smidge of the story comes to you, you got, you got to fill it in and go, okay, where do we, we make the slice of life that is this short story? Generally, a short story covers a short span of time. Now, I did have one that spanned two years, but generally I don't do that. So you have to find exactly the right slice. For example, I've been writing um, Bucky Barnes stories. That's the series, so about Bucky Barnes. And I've been 
writing in my drafts, in my extra material, <laughs> therapy session. And none of it gelled into a story until this last time when I wrote the story. And I didn't start with the therapy session. It came at the end. And that's how I finally found the slice that made it work. So where am I going to slice into Bucky Barnes' life there in Louisiana? What am I going to do in that slice? Where am I going to take it? And where am I going to, you know, cut in and cut out to tell that story? Because it's a series of short stories I'm not telling about every single day. I'm cutting in and out, in and out in this story. AO3 allows for series, which is kind of what, what birthed this and made me want to write it that way. So I thought I'd actually read you maybe one, maybe two, maybe all three of the latest short stories that I have written before NaNoWriMo or right at the end, right at the beginning of NaNoWriMo. I did finish a short story. But first, how, how is NaNoWriMo going on day 13? Well, I've already told you I've gotten 16,273 words when I only needed 15,600, so it's going well. I have managed to update my whips, two of them, one of them twice. Um, the other two once, but I'm working on the second time for the Enterprise story. I've, I've updated the path not taken twice. And interestingly, I covered three quarters, maybe, or two thirds, maybe three quarters of Avengers Age of Ultron in one chapter. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. Um, I did say that I was limited to four points of view, Steve, Natasha, Tony, and Sam. And we got one of each of, you know, we got one or two of each, you know, and everybody was represented to, represented in POV scenes in that chapter. But it did move us toward the big um, blowout in Sokovia for the next chapter. And I didn't want to spend a lot of time in the movie, but I still wanted to get those events having happened. And working Bucky into it somehow. Even though he stays in the tower, he's not fighting with them. But he's in the back of their minds and such. And with Sam, he's, he's right there. And he's not too far after trying to commit suicide, so <laughs> he's still kind of, a, kind of a, having, having some trouble. He's not suddenly happy that he survived. He's, he's got to work on this. So I did uh, manage a scene with Sam and him, and he talks to Steve about what happened, and they end up making a pie. But not just any pie. Um, he shares a memory of his mom with, with Sam, and it's during the Depression, and his mom made this pie and showed him how to weave a pie crust, but the pie she made was a mock apple pie because apples were too expensive at the time. And so they were made, it was made with Ritz crackers, and this is actually a thing. There's this uh, really funny guy named Dylan Hollis you can watch on TikTok 
or in YouTube shorts, or now he does long forms too. But he's really funny in the shorts. But he does old recipes that people send to him or that he finds in old cookbooks. And he's done a few Depression-era recipes. And one of them was this recipe. <laughs> um, I didn't go up through the whole recipe, but the idea that you can make a, a mock apple pie with graham crackers that tastes like apple pie. And he was quite surprised at the end of it. So look it up. Um, Dylan Hollis, he's a lot of fun to watch um, as he makes, and it actually a very tiny kitchen <laughs> as he makes these recipes. And he tastes them every one. And some of them are winners and some of them are so not. <laughs> and some of the depression ones were very sad. But uh, this one I know was a surprisingly you know, good recipe. So Sam makes it or uh, Sam helps Bucky because Bucky only has the use of one arm right now because he damaged the the um, metal arm in the process of trying to commit suicide. So he had, you know, weaving a pie crust. My dad taught me to make, do that. And I mean, really weave under, over, under, over, under, over. There's no two overs, two unders in a row. It's a tricky thing to do. And it takes a lot of coordination with your hands. And the folding over of those uh, strips of dough. But I am kind of a pie snob. Um, there's this rather, you know, th th this restaurant that's known for their pies, Tippins, around here. And they don't weave their pie crusts. They lay them all under, all over. And they don't weave them under, over, under, over. <laughs> like, that is not a weave. That is a lattice, maybe, but it is not a weave. No, weave is under, over, under, over. And there's a very specific way to do it that makes it fairly easy, but you really do need to coordinate your hands very delicately as you do it. And I've taught people to do it in um, community education at uh, the UMKC, University of Missouri, Kansas City, and um, it's called Coon University, and I did it back before we adopted kids, so before 2010. Um, but I did it several years in a row, and I ended up doing two classes around Thanksgiving and Christmas, and it was called How to Weave a Pie Crust and Make a Half-and-Half -half Pie. And the weaving was definitely the harder part of that. The half-and-half -half pie is easy. All it needs is gravity. You tilt the pie pan, put in one, set it down, quickly put in the other on the other side before it has time to roll over and fill up the whole pie. And then you kind of fill in your halves to make a full pie. That's easy. Weaving the pie crust on the top of it is not. But I can teach people to do it, but not in a podcast. It's a visual thing. Anyway. So... That's kind of a fun scene there when Rhodey is not convinced it's going to work out, not it's not going to taste like a pie, and Hill can't figure out how it works because, you know, maybe it's hiding pears in there, but he's like, no, there's no fruit. And he's very surprised then when he tastes the pie and you taste apples, even though there are no apples. It's all graham, Ritz crackers and syrup, and it makes it work. I've got to try this some point. I've have to, got to try this uh, pie and see if it actually does taste like apples. But I thought that was a neat idea. And I realized in doing the math, 
if Bucky was born in 1917, he'd be 10 in 1927, and the crash happened in 1928. So he wasn't actually very old in the Depression. Now, the Depression did kind of last a bit into the 30s, and it probably still... It was picking up under the New Deal, but it really picked up with the war. And the production put everybody to work or in the army, and it, it, the war really did end the Depression. So, yeah, it, he was younger than I thought during the Depression. So his mom was still around, and she would be making that pie, which is very cool. Um, you know how to make messes with some other stories of mine where I said that um, Bucky worked three jobs to keep, take care of Steve because he was sick, too sick to work, basically. The work was all physical. During the Depression, well, during the Depression, he's too young to work. I'd have to, like, look at the stats on how the Depression was year by year in New York, <laughs> see if it lasted to the point of him being an adult with Steve. Um, because if it didn't, my stats are wrong, and I may have to go back and change a story. Now, sometimes I will not do that. Like I said before, if once I post a story and it's done, it's going to set in stone. So somebody pointed out some historical inaccuracies in the journey. But I decided not to make the change because I really needed that shed to have a tin roof. And because... Yeah, the Young Riders wasn't exactly <laughs> historically accurate, so it was okay. But when I wrote um, Aftermath and I wanted to merge real history with game history, I leaned heavily into real history, putting the dates on the right day, not the game day, on the right day. And if I find a factual mistake with real history that it's not really critical to the story to change it, I'll probably change it. So I'll have to look into that and see about changing whichever story mentions that if I need to. But like I said, I have to look up year to year the dates of how the Depression was felt in New York which I'm not even sure what the Google term is for that, but I'll have to figure it out. So that is, you know, when I'm talking about Bucky and a whip, that is called the path not taken. It is an AU where Bucky sits down beside the unconscious Steve at the end of Captain America Winter Soldier instead of walking off into the woods. And now I've, because I've done that second chapter of that, I have moved on to Enterprise and Finding Home, which is the sequel to Alien Us, which I spent an entire season, 30 episodes, reading into this podcast. So I hope you've enjoyed, you enjoyed that. And then those of you who've heard it here in the podcast first, won't have to wait six years to hear the sequel, but you will have to wait till I finish it. The thing is, I think it's in range. And what I did in this chapter, I've only written two scenes so far, but they're on Enterprise, and they have to do with Hoshi. 
I have switched. I originally thought she was just going to be, you know, it's going to be bookends like with Enterprise and Alien Us. It was there in the beginning. It's there in the end. And I've decided where I left off at the end of chapter um, 12. 12? I think it's 12. I lose track with um, with Malcolm. I don't have to write all the scenes that come next with him. I might put in a scene now and then with him, but I could switch back to Hoshi and see how she's dealing with it at the end of that mission that they had them on. Now, I still don't want to make too much work for myself. I do not want to come up with that mission. I've kind of made it vague. Um... And I've made it last a long time. So they've spent a long time negotiating or talking to whoever it is, and I've decided who it will be. Um, I've kind of looked to see if there's a date for first contact for this race that um, would get in my way, but Memory Alpha didn't have anything on them. So I think I'm, think I'm good with using them. And I know kind of how it's going to end the mission, but... Hoshi and Trip are the people that I've used so far for points of view, and they are not integral to the mission. I mean, well, she is, kind of. But, like, Trip is an engineer. He doesn't need to focus on the, the, the um, negotiations, the, dia- you know, the, the ambassador stuff. <laughs> He's not at that level. He can just go work on his engines. Hoshi is kind of doing the same thing, even though she is necessary, because she's the translator. She is the genius who can pick up a language really fast and parse its dialogue, its grammar and its syntax and all that. And she's trying to build the UT, the universal translator that later generations of Star Trek will use. But she's trying to build it so that (laughs) she doesn't have to do it all herself, but she can do it all herself. And so... They've needed her to translate things. So she's just concentrating on the translating, focusing on the job. Leave the details, the, me- the, the way the mission is going to the others. The thing is, she is not okay. She is struggling. It's been a couple of months since Malcolm left. Um, over three, in fact. And... That was not that long after Shiaru, uh, inter- you know, all of Alien Us. So she's not okay. She's physically okay. That All that stuff that she was left with, the broken hip and all that, that's healed. But, and she is seeing Dr. Phlox for kind of therapy. She's running to trip um, every once in a while, just tell me again what how how Malcolm is. Tell me again. And he tells her. He kind of spins it positive, but he tells her every time. And she cries and, you know, collapses on his bed. And she, he rubs her back while she cries. He hands her to the tissues, brings the, the trash can up on the bed so she can throw the tissue away. <laughs> he's taking care of her because that's what he promised to do. But he's having a little struggle with it, too. Not with her, but he had to leave Malcolm in that state but he doesn't dump it on her he talks to the captain and maybe he talks to Phlox we didn't actually see it in the scene he thought it you know or maybe he you know mentioned it I think he thought it but she goes to him 
She goes to flocks, and to Paul is working with the neuropressure with her to help her sleep. Another way she sleeps is by wearing herself out in the gym. And so the second scene I wrote was her at the end of a work day, because remember, I don't want to write the mission, so I'm going to cut back with her maybe before she goes to work or after she goes to work at the end of the day, but I am not going to write the mission. I refuse. It's just too much work to come up with that. A mission that takes months negotiating with this race that could be an ally or could be a, um, an enemy. So, you know, I don't have to, and I'm not going to, and you can't make me. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> the writer gets to think about that. Remember what slice or am I telling? I wanted to tell the Malcolm on Earth slice and Hoshi to come in at the end. And the thing is, this could be at the end. We might be coming to the end of it. I did not want to write, you know, an alien us. Why? Enterprise was where they are and ran into this planet. <laughs> I don't care. That's not the slice I was telling. And, you know, sometimes if that's not the point of the story, I don't want to have to dig out those details. Let, you know, nah. No, <laughs> somebody else can figure that out if they feel like it, but no, I'm not going to. So I'm going to skate around it. And I'm going to end this mission rather soon. But it, they're kind of far from Earth. So it's not going to be so simple as, boom, the next day they're home. It's going to take a while to get there. And I could make the negotiations go badly and Enterprise gets damaged and has to be repaired. That might be one way to keep it on Earth for a while. That's possible. Or they could just kind of go neutral. We're not your ally. We're not your friend. You know, we're not your enemy. We're just, you go your way, we'll go ours. You know? They're not going to be an ally. I know that. So it's got to be one of the other two. And if it kind of goes neutral, that kind of is a good thing too because Hoshi's just more like, a, what was the point? What was the point of taking me away from Malcolm or taking Malcolm away from me? What was the point of making me come out here when I needed to go home? Because she does. She deserves to be home with her family. She was experimented on just as he was. She was vivisected once. And she was violated other times. And she was made a slave. And she was talked about as an object not as a person and it's still traumatic for her and for most of that year she had Malcolm in her head and now she doesn't so she's got PTSD and she's got it pretty bad so as the days wear on she's just getting worse it's like the stress is building 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 and she doesn't know what state Malcolm is in now she knew he crashed Trip couldn't hide that from her. He had to tell her, put the best spin on it he could, but he had to tell her. So he, she knows he crashed. And he needs her. Though I think I'm going to you know, bring it around to have her doubt. 
what if he doesn't need me anymore? He's got that telepathic therapist. He's got Tripp's family there. What if he doesn't need me? What if he realizes he doesn't love me? She's not thinking right. She's trying to do the positive self-talk, <laughs> but she's not, but she, she has to counter the negative that keeps coming in. She's got PTSD. She's stressed. And she really doesn't like the Admiral who said she had to stay on the ship. Whether it's all just because of that, it remains to be seen. I've thought of maybe of having a scene with Archer and the Admiral, and the Admiral I don't even want to name. I, I can come up with a name if I have to. But the, the Admiral saying that Hoshi's not putting on a professional face. You know, she's not... And Archer would be defending her. She has complex post-traumatic stress disorder. She hasn't gotten what she needed because you we need you said we need her on this mission when she needed to go home she needed that she still needs that he would stick up for her even if it means losing his crew that's not on anybody's radar yet well trip kind of mentioned it to 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 malcolm that you know Maybe you go back to Enterprise, but maybe you, you realize you can't or you don't want to. That's okay, too. So I know where it's going to go. And I've probably gone too far on that already. All right, so the other third, uh, whip will be the next chapter that I write after I finish this one of Enterprise. And that's Momentous. It's a Final Fantasy 15 story. And we're ready for the big showdown between Noctis and Arden. For that, I can either write from the point of view of Noctis, because Ignis is unconscious along with Gladio and Prompto. But I don't think I will. I think I'll pick it up where the guys wake up. And maybe they rush down the stairs, you know, out of the, the citadel, down, you know, down the elevator, out of the citadel, down the stairs, and find Noctis after he's defeated Arden. That seems the best place. It kind of picks up right before the camera picks up in the game. Noctis says, you know, walk tall to his friends on the steps. They salute. He goes up the steps. They turn around, and Iron Giants are coming from the ground. So that's the part that I want to tell. I want to tell that fight against the Iron Giants and the demons because the demons don't go away when Noctis defeats Arden. They go away when Noctis, and they don't, oh, they don't go away when Noctis is killed by the other, you know, the, the kings of the past in the throne room. They go away when Arden defeat or Noctis defeats Arden in the afterlife. That's when they go away. So those iron giants, well, at the time that they're coming out of the ground, Noctis has already defeated Arden in the on the world in the world. So that proves they don't go away then. 
But Arden isn't defeated till he's defeated in the afterlife, so that's when the demons go away, and that's still a fight until then. The magic goes away at the death of the king. It happened to Knox and the glaive that were on, you know, good and bad side. They didn't have access to the king's magic when the king, King Regis, died. So when Noctis was alive, the, the other three guys had access to the armager. They could pull weapons from that. Not, um, Ignis could pull spells from that as well. He could firebind, um, stormbind, or um, icebound, icebind, frostbind, I think it is, his daggers to different effects, for instance. Without magic, they're just daggers. And without magic, there's no access to the armager. So how is that going to change that fight? I know where it's going. So that chapter is not going to be hard to write at all. And those don't have to be 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 word chapters. Because it is moments. Momentous means moments in Latin. So it's moments of story, of this story covering a very long time. So I don't have, that seems like it'll be a fairly long chapter, but I don't have to, to write <laughs> a really large chapter. It's kind of like short stories, but they're much more linked than say the, the series, the pieces to a puzzle series with Bucky Barnes. So that's what I'm doing, and it's been a success so far. I think I started with, if it's not one, oh no, The Path Not Taken in um, NaNoWriMo. Or maybe I started with A Tale of Two Cities. I'm not sure, but, oh, excuse me, A Tale of Two Cats. <laughs> a Tale of Two Cats and Other Stories is the last short story I've written so far of the Pieces to a Puzzle series. Um not the best title, but it's the one I landed on. Um, if you want to su suggest a better one after hearing it, you, you know, you're welcome to do so. Um, then I wrote a chapter of The Finding Home, and then I wrote a chapter of Momentous, and then I wrote another chapter of The Path Not Taken. And now I'm writing another chapter of Finding Home. So I'm just going to keep rolling that way. Path Not Taken, Finding Home, Momentous, till I get those 36,000 words by the end of the month. It is kind of getting in the way of my doing other things <laughs> for, you know, hobbies like playing video games or tonight going out and driving Uber to make a little extra money to pay for Christmas. <laughs> I did yesterday and made a whole $43 because with the cold I had to turn on the heater and I drive an electric car and it was a long trip. So that one trip, one trip, depleted my battery. Enough that I had to stop at a charger for 30 minutes to make sure I had enough to get home. One trip. I did try to take another short trip, and um, that would have just been like four miles total in that area where I was. I tried to do that, but the guy canceled on me. I did get a cancellation fee so that and a, and a tip, and so that raised it up. I actually got $43 in the app. She gave me a $6 tip in cash. So I've actually made uh, $49. Woohoo! 
I was making close to 200 or a little over 200 on the weekends back in better weather. So, yeah, Ubers just uh, may not be something I do every weekend as it gets cold. I don't think I want to drive when it's uh, snowy, sleety, or um, icy, for instance. So, yeah, I'll be making less extra money. I make a pretty good salary, though, and my husband makes a pretty good salary and often gets extra hours. So he's going to help pay for Christmas night, I think, more than I am. All right, so let's read a story. Okay, so we're going back to the Pieces to a Puzzle series with Bucky Barnes. And... The first stories were kind of mixed up. They were still kind of in order, but they were mixed with other things of other series when I read them into the podcast. So I'm not going to start back over there, but I am going to kind of give you a reminder. Okay, so the first story is also a story of the of making the Winter Soldier series, The Asset. So this tells the story from the bottom of the mountain to two years of, through two years of brainwashing and conditioning and getting the arm for Bucky Barnes to the point that he doesn't remember his name but realizes that Steve hasn't come and is told that Steve is dead. Then it's Healing Hurts. And in Healing Hurts, Sam has gone to New York because Bucky hasn't answered his text for three weeks, and he's like, oh, I thought he was better when he comes to there and he realizes Bucky's remembered something else, and it's caused him to have such a traumatic reaction that he crushed his phone, and he couldn't re re uh, reply to any text. And he's written it in a journal, and as he goes to take a shower, he leaves the journal out for Sam to read. And Sam reads, basically, the asset that story, that memory, and he's written it in third person, kind of as a distancing thing. It's not really me, it's, it's him. Um, because it's so painful, he writes it, he, he wants to distance himself from it, so he writes it with he instead of I. Now, and then the next story is the next stage. In the next stage, Bucky is put in the freezer and then he's the, this is his first time in the machine, and he comes out of it an amnesiac. So, in the next story, after that, in Bearing Witness, Sam wakes up in the morning, and Bucky's staring through the wall into the other next apartment um, because he's having, you know, he's had another memory. And again, he leaves the notebook for Sam to read, and it's the next stage. So the next puzzle, or uh, next story in a pieces to the puzzle is amends, and in amends he's worried because um, Pepper Stark is asked to see him, and he thinks he's she's going to you know yell at him, rip him a new one, whatever, because he killed her daughter's grandparents. Um, but what he finds out is that Tony, during the five years that you know during the snap had forgiven Bucky, had realized that 
he overreacted, that he maybe pushed off Bucky into all that guilt because he read all the things that happened to him to make him the Winter Soldier, and he it made him sick. And he realized, you know, that guy in the, you know, that was attacking them in Vienna, it's not the same guy who was there in Siberia. He was under the, the, the brainwashing. Now he's not. And he was a person who wanted to live. He was fighting to live. He wasn't fighting to kill Tony. He was fighting to stay alive. And Tony's side of the equation in that fight never, never worked. Tony wanted to kill one of Steve's friends. Steve wanted both of his friends to live. And if that took stopping Tony, then that's what it took, stopping Tony. And that's what he did. But Tony forgives Bucky, and he never got to make the amends because by the time, you know, they bring people back and Bucky's back, Tony ends up dying to save the world. So he never got the chance to make amends to Bucky, so Pepper does. And she gives him the file that we see at the end of Captain America Winter Soldier that, that Black Widow hands to Steve. Tony got it because Steve left it in the, at the Avengers compound. Um, she gives him that with the translations. She gives him two business cards of two lawyers, one who is a crusader going um, out for dishonorably discharged people who are dishonorably discharged for things like trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder and um, getting that reversed. So that's one of them because he was a prisoner of war for 70 freaking years. And the other one is going after Hydra's money. And Hydra had a lot of money and he was a victim. So that's what's happening on his behalf. So it actually turns out to be a very touching, moving thing for him. That was amends. It was actually she was making amends for Tony to him. Then the next story is Strong. Strong is the third part of the Making the Winter Soldier series. And that he is given the serum, the last part of the serum that actually gives him the super soldier strength. And... It was a long, ordrous ordeal. It was horrible. Um, so in Standing Watch, he has that flashback of that event. And actually, Sam wakes him up from screaming in his sleep, but he's still in the flashback, and he sits with him through it. Um, yeah, so he kind of experiences strong doesn't read it in the journal. Bucky writes it in the journal afterwards. All right, so then there is, uh, let's see, catching up. In catching up, Bucky's trying not to sleep because he doesn't like these memories, but, you know, Sam's trying to tell him that it doesn't work that way. You're just going to forget all kinds of things, and you're not going to, you know, you get to choose, you don't get to choose, so you got to sleep. And then Sarah gives, you know, him an idea of taking a nap in a different place, and, you know, different sounds, different everything. And she actually goes up, puts him in her bed, and she lays down beside him on top of the covers, still clothed, 
and she just rubs his palm as he falls asleep like she would for her boys. And she asks him, did anybody ever touch you kindly like this? And, you know, while he was a prisoner. And the, he answers no. And she realizes there's a lot of other things he's never done. She goes back downstairs and he's like, do you realize he's never, he never got to go to a movie, read a book, take a girl out? None of those things while he was that prisoner. So they put together a jar called the Bucky ketchup jar with all these little slips of paper they choose, you know, the things that Bucky hasn't done or has not done much since 1943. And they drop them in there. And then one of them, you know, a couple of them are about Lord of the Rings since he read The Hobbit. One was that watched The Hobbit films. And so when he comes back downstairs, he gets introduced to the, the ketchup jar, the Bucky Barnes ketchup jar. And they actually start to watch the Lord of the, 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 the Hobbit movies uh, from Peter Jackson. So that was catching up. So it was a bit of angst and then some fluff. And then, hold on, there we go. The next one is settling scores, followed by giving in, and then a tale of two cats and other stories. And those are the three I'm going to read tonight. The first is settling scores. So I won't tell you what happens in it because I'm going to read it. All right. Settling scores by Gabrielle Lawson. You already know how to drive, Sam hollered up to Bucky. Motorcycles, anyway. He stepped back to get a better look. About six feet up and to your right. He then turned his attention to the small crowd of kids gathered at the base of the tree. All of them were staring up at Bucky in awe. And the next item that ends up in our trees or on our roof is going straight to the thrift store. That elicited an adequate number of groans. There was a thud as Bucky landed, frisbee in hand. He handed it back to Ollie who gulped wide-eyed and quickly started running away. You should say, thank you, Mr. Barnes, Sam called after him. Thank you, Mr. Barnes, Willie offered as he and the other kids hurried after Ollie. Bucky crossed his arms and smirked. It's not like I have anything more pressing to do. That gave Sam an idea. I saw this show about a couple of guys in Seattle who started a nonprofit rescuing cats from trees. At least no one would throw a cat up there on purpose just so you could show off. Are there a lot of cats getting stuck in trees in Delacroix? Bucky asked, leaving Sam to wonder if he got the joke. Sam gave up. I have no idea. It was hot out and he knew there was a fresh pitcher of lemonade in the fridge, so he headed for the house. You know they're just going to throw stuff up on their own roofs or in their trees, Bucky told him as he caught up. Sam groaned, realizing he'd given the kids a loophole. And those particular kids were great at finding said loopholes. That why you want to learn to drive to get away from kids and their penchant for gravity-defying sports equipment? I didn't need to drive in New York, he replied as he held open the door for Sam. It's different here, more spread out. If I could drive, I could help Sarah by picking up the kids or running errands. All good points, but Sam had had one too. But you know how to drive, he repeated as he opened the fridge and pulled out the pitcher. Bucky retrieved two glasses. I know how to drive illegally. I also know how to fly illegally. Planes, quinjets, helicopters. Yeah, Hydra probably wasn't big on proper licensing. Sam put two ice cubes in each glass, then filled them up with sweet, the sweet tart liquid. 
Ah, you need to know the pesky things like laws and regulations and how to turn on the defroster. Exactly, Bucky agreed. I need a license. He opened the door to go back on the, to the porch, but Sam was surprised to find a young Hispanic woman in a suit with her hand about up to knock. Hello, Bucky said in greeting. She smiled and lowered her hand. Good afternoon, Sergeant Barnes. I'm Carolina Oliveira. I was hired by Prepper Stark to represent you. Yes, I remember, Bucky said, shaking her offered hand. Sam was curious. Bucky had told him that Tony had forgiven him and that Pepper had offered the amends Tony didn't have a chance to. We were just going to sit out here and have some lemonade. Would you like a glass? It's got to be hot in that jacket. It is a bit. That would be nice. Bucky stepped out and Sam set his glass on the table. Have mine. I'll grab another. He offered her the seat closest to Bucky, then hurried back inside. Bucky introduced him as he came back out. This is Sam Wilson, Captain America. Her smile widened. I know, I recognized you. She turned back to Bucky. But perhaps you and I should speak in private. I'm good with him being here, Bucky re replied. He owns the place. Besides, he knows most everything anyway. I nearly killed him twice. Sam snorted. <laughs> he did, too. Came very close. I have the insurance claim pictures to prove it. She chuckled. <laughs> that would be the DC fight. Fights, Bucky corrected. Plural, Sam clarified. She laughed. I've seen the video. It surprises me you can joke about it. Sam waved it off. Eh, he apologized. And I was brainwashed at the time. Bucky took a breath and sighed. I hope you're not going to ask me to testify. All jokes aside, it's really hard to talk about. There's no need, Sergeant, she quickly assured him. Hydra did the testifying. While you were fighting on the helicarriers, Natasha Romanoff was releasing all of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s and Hydra's records. And, given the length of time they had you, there was a lot there. I can get you copies if you like. Not fun reading, but it might fill some gaps for you. Sam looked at Bucky. He was staring at his lemonade. It might be good to have, even if you're not ready yet. It could be there when you are. Bucky just nodded and took a sip. Ms. Oliveira moved on. The real reason I've come is that the committee that is proportioning the money to Hydra's victims has offered you a settlement. I need to know if it is acceptable to you. Sam wasn't sure if Bucky was breathing. Miss Oliveira took a drink of her lemonade and plunged ahead. I've fought for more than the money, Sergeant Barnes. They've agreed to fully acknowledge that the Winter Soldier was an American POW tortured, experimented on, brainwashed, programmed, and otherwise abused for seven decades by Hydra and the Soviet Union. If you can accept their wording, I will personally request the Smithsonian correct their slanderous Winter Soldier display. It could also bolster your other case. Sam wasn't aware of another case, so he asked about it. Military, Bucky replied in short. Sounds accurate, if rather bland. Sam nodded. Pepper was thorough. He took another sip of his lemonade. And they've offered a sum of $35 million. Sam blew the lemonade right out his nose. It burned, and he nearly choked. He looked at Bucky, who was definitely not breathing. $35 million? Sam squeaked out. It breaks down to half a million for each year of your imprisonment. Bucky just asked. How much money do they have? I'm not the only victim, and certainly not the most important. She smiled. The longest-held POW in history. They victimized you to victimize dozens more. But trust me, Hydra had, more, had way more money than this. There's enough for every victim so long as they can identify them. Um, okay, Bucky said, still shocked. As long as my victims don't feel they've been cheated by what they offer me. I assure you they are trying to find and compensate every last one. Unfortunately, you were often ordered to leave no witnesses, so not everyone was identified in the records. 
I can help with that, Bucky replied quietly. I'll pass any names you can give me to the committee. She pulled out a business card. Just email me anyone you remember. Then she pulled a folder from her briefcase, which she set by the side of the chair. She pulled a paper from it and placed it on top of the folder along with a pen. If you accept this settlement, you'll need to sign this paper. She handed the folded paper and pen to Bucky. Read it carefully and be certain before signing. Sam was really excited for Bucky, but he realized he was a victim of the Winter Soldier too. Do they have my name? Yes, Mr. Wilson, she said, turning to him. The fights in D.C. were well televised. I'm certain they'll contact you in due time, but you are free to hire an attorney to represent your interests. Bucky finished reading, then signed the bottom of the paper. He handed everything back to Miss Oliveira. Miss Oliveira filed the paper and pen in her briefcase, then opened the folder and handed it back to Bucky. Sam left his seat to take a look. They both just stared for a moment. Sam broke the silence. I don't think I've ever seen so many zeros in one place. I think the government may cancel my stipend, Bucky commented as he touched the cashier's check that would make him a millionaire. Ms. Oliveira touched his arm. It can't buy peace, she stood, but it can alleviate a hell of a lot of other worries so you can work on finding peace. It was an honor, Sergeant Barnes. I hope your other case is just as fruitful. She started to walk away. He doesn't owe you a cut of it, Sam asked. She turned and smiled again. No, Mrs. Stark has compensated me adequately, I can assure you. I might even take a few cases pro bono. Hydra was a bunch of complete assholes. Yori Nakajima, Bucky said, standing. His son, one of the witnesses. Do you have his contact information? She asked, and he nodded. Email it, and I'll look into it. Good afternoon, Sergeant, Mr. Wilson. Thank you for the lemonade. She walked down the steps and got into her rental car. Bucky fell back into his chair. Sam sat beside him. Damn that some amends. What are you feeling? I don't know, Bucky admitted, staring at the check. A lot. I'll bet, Sam said. If you play your cards right, you're set for life. You're never going to have to scrounge for pocket change under the couch cushions again. You won't need a license. You could hire a driver. Bucky shook his head. I'm not going to live like Howard Stark. I'm still me, and I need my licenses. Sam raised an eyebrow. Now it's plural? Drive, fly. He looked at the check again. I need a bank. Sam chuckled. <laughs> you also need an accountant. Bucky handed Sam and Sarah their earpieces. What do we need these for? Sarah asked, skeptical and maybe a little hurt. You're just depositing a check. Bucky gave her a smile. Oh, I'm going to make them want me to. With that, he shut the car door and walked purposely into the bank. There was initial silence when the door closed behind him, but then as people began to look up, there was a light cacophony of whispers. They probably didn't think he could hear. It was mostly a variation of, it's him. So they'd seen the news. Three people in suits started walking his way. One even left other customers, but the one in the middle was the one he was interested in. Bald man, dark glasses. Ah, just the man I wanted to talk to. He held out his hand and smiled widely. The man took his hand and shook. We're honored you've chosen our bank. Please have a seat, Mr. Barnes. Bucky knew the news hadn't disclosed the actual amount of the settlement, so he very dramatically placed the check on the man's desk after he'd sat down. The man's eyes went wide and his lips formed an oh. Is that enough to open an account? Bucky asked, trying hard to sound innocent and sincere. I haven't been in a bank since 1943, well, except that one in D.C., but that was a Hydra Black site where they fried my brain, so I don't think it counts. 
The man gathered his composure. Yes, it's uh, enough to open an account. Perhaps several. There are many options. I'm sure we can meet your needs. He stopped and stammered for a moment. I apologize. C could I possibly... You can, of course, say no. Could I see your arm? Bucky heard Sam snicker in his ear. He smiled. Sure, no problem. He stood and took off his jacket, letting the black and gold color of his vibranium arm sparkle in the light from the windows. It's a... Wow! The man exclaimed. May I touch it? There were a few oohs and ahs from the audience that had gathered just a few feet behind the desk. Bucky held out his left hand to the man, who felt his palm. Does it have sensation? A little, Bucky admitted. Then he sat again, taking his hand with him. He faked concern and confusion as he looked at the man. Is something wrong, Mr. Barnes? He swallowed. I hope I didn't offend. Can I get you some water? We have cookies. He turned to a woman behind him and whispered, Get some cookies. Bucky thought of holding on for a little longer. He liked cookies. Betty pressed on. You know, my memory's a bit spotty. It's uh, all that electric shock. He pointed to his forehead. Are you the one that told the Wilsons that you can't approve their loan because Sam Wilson had no income for the five years he didn't exist? The woman returned and set a plate with three chocolate chip cookies down. They were fresh and warm. He could smell them. But Bucky kept his eyes on the man who'd done, gone just a bit pale. He opened and closed his mouth a couple times. Bucky didn't wait for him. I didn't exist either of those five years, so I probably can't bank here. But, but you're depositing, the man tried. It's fine. He reached for the check, but Bucky was faster. His vibranium hand slapped the desk with an audible thud. The rest of the banquet silent again. Bucky leaned across the desk and gave the man a stern look. It's not fine. Half the universe didn't exist. Sam fought, as I did, to prevent that. We lost. We fought again after we came back to stop Thanos from killing everyone on this planet. That includes you and everyone in this bank. And we, we asked for nothing in return except fairness. Do you think it's fair to discriminate against half the universe? The man backed away and swallowed. Of course, of, of course not. Oh, Bucky sat back, feigning outsized relief. Was it because they are black? He snatched his check and didn't wait for an answer. He turned and walked through the, for the door. Sarah and Sam were laughing when he returned to the, the, to the car. He leaned in the passenger window and Sarah kissed his cheek. That was priceless. I wish I could have seen his face. She, Sam shook his head, still grinning. You still need a bank. Not that bank, Bucky said as he handed them each a cookie. He took his own and got in the back seat. He was, it was crunchy and gooey and so much better than back in the 40s. They have those in New Orleans, right? Let's get the boys and make a day of it. Mmm, Sam remarked, savoring the cookie as he put the car in reverse. They do make good cookies, though. So that was Settling Scores. I wanted to have kind of a little fun, but also I wanted to follow up on at least one of those lawyers that I've had in the men's. She was the lawyer going after um, the Hydra money, and I wanted it to be big. <laughs> I wanted it to fit 70 years of what he did, and I toyed with 70 million, but I decided, okay, we'll have that, 35 million. It's still a lot of money. <laughs> so Bucky Barnes is now a millionaire. I have ideas for what he does with it, but... Um, uh, I haven't, they haven't made it into a story fully yet, but then I wanted to turn it around and have fun with that banker 
from this first season of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And so Bucky dangles that giant cashier's check for $35 million in front of his face and then gets to call him out on their policies and their racism. And gets cookies. Why cookies, you may ask? Well, um, I bank with a credit union, and at least before the pandemic, and I think they're starting to do it again, you go in the bank branch and they have cookies. Fresh made, made chocolate chip cookies. I don't think they make them by hand, but still, they make cookies, and you can get a cookie. <laughs> so <laughs> I decided to put the cookies in there. So I hope you liked the banter at the beginning, and a little bit of teasing, and you know the reminder that, yeah, Bucky does know how to do all those things, but not legally. There are pesky things like regulations and where the defroster is. Why the where the defroster is? When I did my first driving test, I didn't know where the defroster was, and I got counted off for it. So there you are. <laughs> when I was 16. So I put that little detail in. Sprinkle real, you know, one way to make characters feel full and human and everything is to sprinkle real details in. And Sam is already pretty full and de detailed, but it gives the, the, the situation some grounding there by throwing in real details, you know, like that one from my 16-year-old driving test that I did not fail the, uh, the, I don't think I passed the first time, but I think I got it on the second. All right, and then, uh, so because he left the earphones with Sam and Sarah, they got to hear him think... <laughs> That one banker getting getting his you know, getting his due, so he settled some scores there. So Hydra settled some scores with him, and he settled some scores with the with the banker. And then we assume they all went to New Orleans, found a different bank, and had a day of it with the kids. So maybe they went to the World War II museum. That was that's in New Orleans, and that was one of the things in the Bucky ketchup jar. Ta da! <laughs> okay. So now we're ready for the next story, which is a very short story called Giving In. Giving In by Gabrielle Lawson. No! She kept her back to him, but stopped rinsing dishes. The water was still running and her shoulders were stiff. Sarah, Bucky tried again. I don't need it. You do. No, she insisted. Sam put you up to this? I don't need no handouts from no white man. Ouch. Bucky knew she didn't mean it, and it just lashed out because she misunderstood his intentions. And it's not a handout. It's an investment in your business. She turned around to face him. You mean like a partner? She hadn't relaxed her shoulders. Instead, she crossed her arms over her chest. Yes, he assured her. A quiet one. You run it however you want. So I do all the work and you get half the profits? Her eyes flashed in challenge. Bucky sighed. I'll do as much or as little as you want me to for half the profits. You just know more about running the, your business than I do. Now, if you want to assassinate a rifle, I know more about that than you do. Her shoulders softened and she looked down. Point taken. She looked back up and her eyes were softer. No assassinations and you need new skills. We'll work on that. I'll expect a lawyer to draw up the proper papers. Of course. Then Bucky panicked. The only lawyers he knew were on the cards Pepper had given him, and they weren't business lawyers. Google, she said, bailing him out. 
computers in the other room. You can get Sam to teach you. Oh, really? I know how to Google. I lived on my own for two years, you know. Now there was a mischievous look into her eyes. Sam told me you had no furniture. Bucky wasn't sure what he'd gotten himself into. I did in Romania. He didn't mention that his mattress had been on the floor. I had what I needed in Brooklyn. Then she smiled and turned back to the dishes. What are you boys watching tonight? The two towers, he replied, grateful that she had brought an end to their tense interaction. Well, keep the sound low so you don't wake my babies. Yes, ma'am. Sam passed Bucky as he headed for the living room. Get it started. I'll be in in a minute. Bucky nodded, and Sam turned to his sister. You two bicker like an old married couple. Sam, she warned. He wasn't flirting. We were negotiating. He still flirts, he grumped taking a wet dish from her and putting it into the dishwasher. She dropped the next plate back into the sink and turned her full attention to him, and he knew he'd overstepped. Samuel Thomas Wilson, I am a grown woman, a widow, and now older than you. I can fend off unwanted flirting just fine without you playing referee. You are not my father. Sam groaned, but was thankful she hadn't hit him at least. But he knew the operative word she'd used there, unwanted. He sighed. If he breaks your heart, I can't break his legs. She chuckled. <laughs> yeah, you didn't up on the wrong side of that. She turned to face him. It's just flirting, Sam. He needs practice. And it's sweet. Yep, that boat had left the dock. Any chance he had of dropping an anchor was gone. He just shook his head and gave her a peck on the cheek. She gave him a gentle push. Go watch your movie. You should join us. What was he doing? He didn't have to encourage it. I gotta be up in the morning, she told him. I can't watch no three-hour movie tonight. He corrected her. It's closer to four. Oh, she pretended. That's much better. She shook her head. Now get in there and let me get these dishes going. Sam relented and joined Bucky on the couch. It's so obvious you two are siblings. So giving in was just a little, little story. <laughs> not even a thousand words, but it had these two scenes that I've been wanting to put out there. And having Sam over here, the one kind of set up a good way for the second one to come in. So I wanted Bucky to, what's he going to do with 35 million? <laughs> and they're struggling because the house is tied up in the loans. So he wants to alleviate that because he's a nice guy and because he's got 35 million dollars. So he wants to give some to her for her business. And I've wanted that since I knew he was going to come into some money. So it, you know, it will alleviate the, you know, it can pay off the loans or it can get her a storefront or, or whatever. It can do that. It can help her business. And that way he's not giving them money. He's investing in their business. So, you know, at first she's going to be like, no, because the pride, you know, we're not going to accept a handout, especially from no white man. So I don't really think that Sarah is racist. That was just her anger snapping out. Um, so I think she's just, you know, she was trying to push him away in that moment. And he had to kind of, you know, <laughs> come at it more gently. Um, but it worked and she was okay with it. And then Sam walks in because, you know, he told Bucky in episode five, I believe it was, don't be flirting with my sister after he'd already flirted with his sister. <laughs> and he did it again. <laughs> so the flirting still happened. 
And so I've mentioned it in my story sometimes, the flirting that you're not supposed to be doing. Um, flirting still happens. But Sarah's a grown woman, and she's going to put Sam in his place about this. He, gets, he doesn't get a say who flirts with her and who doesn't. She can handle herself. If she doesn't want it, she kind of wants it. So <laughs> Sarah enjoyed that flirting when he first said, Hi, I'm Bucky. And she turned the, you know, she kind of turned that uh, clipboard off to one hip. And she's like, I'm Sarah. Yeah, she was flirting right back. So, <laughs> yeah. But she's a grown woman. She can choose whether or not somebody is flirting with her and whether it's okay or not. And if she needed his help, she'd probably ask for it. And he, and he, he did, she didn't ask for his help. So, but it's also the point that, yeah, if he breaks her heart, Sam cannot break Bucky's legs. <laughs> He's a super soldier. That's not going to end well for Sam. So just kind of a, a fun little fluff story there to get those two scenes out. And the last story I've written for this series so far is A Tale of Two Cats and Other Stories by Gabrielle Lawson. Sam found Bucky in his room reading and listening to big band music on his record player. He knocked on the doorframe, and Bucky looked up from the book. Oh, you're back. All go well? Yeah, wrapped it up pretty quick, Sam told him. Ended up in Vienna, so I decided to get you something. Bucky scoffed. Vienna. That was not a good day. Sam chuckled, then lifted an item from the floor just outside the room. It was fairly heavy due to its contents. He tossed it to the super soldier, who had no trouble catching it with one hand. Bucky's eyes went wide in recognition. They did keep the bombs and guns and such, Sam admitted. He stepped into the room as Bucky opened the backpack and took out a dozen or so composition notebooks. He set them beside himself on the futon he'd graduated to. It was presently in sofa configuration, so Sam sat on the other side of the books. Bucky picked one up, turned it upside down, and opened the back cover. He closed it quickly. May I? Sam asked. Bucky fished through the other books, then handed him one. He wondered what it was like at first. That's the first one. Started the night after the helicarriers. Sam opened it the normal way, from the front. James Buchanan Barnes. Steve Rogers, Captain America. You know me. Bucky, you've known me your whole life. Your name is James Buchanan Barnes. You're my friend. I'm with you till the end of the line. Then there was a paragraph about a woman at a stove and three little girls at a table. James, can you get the bread ready? After that was the chair and the machine, the words not specified or written out, the mission, Siberia Freezer Winter Soldier Asset. You did remember being called Asset, Sam pointed out, though maybe you didn't remember you remembered it. Walk me through that night. How'd these memories come to you? Bucky sighed and leaned back. Well, the first part, Steve said those things. At first, I fought it. I didn't know him. There was no my whole life. There was only the mission, nothing before. Until he said, I'm with you till the end of the line. Why that? How'd that break you out? I said it to him. I could see it in my mind. He was small and sad, and I said it to him. His mother had just died. I asked him to come live with us. But having that memory showed me that he was telling the truth, and there was a before. Sam could see that. That one memory would give him a, a reason to question everything. He did know the man who, who'd called him friend and nearly died. Why'd you walk away after pulling him from the river? He knew he was potentially digging too deep for this casual conversation, but he was curious. Bucky gave him a side eye. I was an assassin, Sam, not an idiot. A 
After what I'd done, they would have killed me. You would have killed me. Sam had to give him that. He probably would have. I would have been wrong to, and Steve would never have forgiven me. Okay, so where did you go? To the ideal First Federal Bank. That was very specific and incongruous at the same time. You went to a bank? Hydra base. I was supposed to return there. I didn't want to. I figured out they had taken my memories. So I climbed a building to the roof, set my broken arm, and waited for dark. Then I went to the bank, caught a dozen or so hydramen. I disabled them and lined them up in the vault with the machine. Sam felt a chill. It was there in the bank? Wait, you disabled them? How exactly? Bucky turned toward him. You gotta remember, Sam. My memory barely existed. I had no moral compass. They'd trained me to kill people. That's what I was good at. But I didn't want to kill them. I wanted answers. So yes, I attacked them and I negated their threat. But I didn't kill them. Some had broken ribs, broken legs, concussion, knife in the femoral artery, etc. Sam felt uneasy but ignored it. The winter soldier wouldn't have gone to t from terrifying to I trust him with my nephews overnight. It would have been a progression. And these were hydragoons. Hydragoons who had hurt him and taken his memories. He nodded and Bucky went on. I asked questions about who I was, about the words, the order of things, machine, words, mission, freezer. Most didn't want to answer. One figured he might as well. He told me about the museum, the Captain America exhibit. I took their phones, their weapons, and one, while well, I took his wallet, his keys, his cigarettes. I rigged a grenade on the seat of that damn machine to blow it up, told the goons to clear the room if they wanted to live. You gave up killing cold turkey, but not maiming. Bucky just shrugged. I just didn't want to. They had trained me to, programmed me to. I didn't want to do what they wanted me to do, but I also didn't want them to overpower me and put me back in that machine. So I fought them in self-defense and stopped short of killing them. If they didn't get out of, in time, it was on them, not me. Right. Bucky at that time barely had enough memories to count on his fingers. Where'd you go then? The wallet and the keys, Bucky replied. I had his car and his address. After I'd cleared it to be sure I was alone, I tried to find something to eat. I knew the kitchen because I remembered meeting Pierce in his, so I knew the fridge, too, because he got milk out, but I didn't know what it was called. It was a cold box, and there was it was full of stuff I didn't recognize. I didn't know what was good to eat. I found the even colder part and some microwavable meals. It had instructions and an image of one of the things in the kitchen. Beef stroganoff was my first meal free. And with that first bite, I remembered my mom, the woman at the stove. Bucky nodded. I didn't know it was my mom, but it was, and the girls were my sisters. I found some notebooks and a pen, and I wrote down what I remembered. Sam nodded, remembering what he'd said on the floor in Brooklyn, in case you forgot. Bucky nodded and continued the story. I tried the bed, but it was too soft. I slept sitting up beside it. I didn't exactly know how, but I closed my eyes and managed about five hours. I bathed and dressed in the man's clothes, then drove his car to the mall. I went to the museum when it opened at ten. Sam looked at, back at the notebook. Everything about Bucky Barnes from the exhibit at that time was there, copied down into the book, including the dates. There was also a folded pamphlet about the exhibit tucked into the next page. There were more memories of his family and the realization that they were his family and that they were now either very old or dead. There were, also, there were a few memories of Steve when he was small and sickly and picking fights with bullies that Bucky had to save him from. He remembered Brooklyn and New York. There were even some memories of the war, of the Howling Commandos as well. But halfway through, the writing turned upside down. 
Sam remembered how Bucky had opened the other notebook from the back, so he flipped the book over and upside down. Names and dates. Missions, starting with the most recent, to ensure the success of Project Insight. You wrote the bad memories in the back of the book? Bucky bit his bottom lip as he nodded, but they kept overtaking the books until they were the only memories in the books. Sam gingerly picked up the one Bucky had opened earlier. He opened the back cover to find a very detailed account of the fight on the helicarriers, from the flight deck to the Quinjet to the fight with him and Steve, and finally the fight with Steve, who was trying to change the last ship. Every blow, every shot, every detail. Sam flipped a few pages and saw the fight on the street, the destruction of his car, the shooting of Fury, all in page after page of descriptive details. What it sounded like, what it felt like, even what it smelled like at times. More pages, a witness whose hand was shaking so bad he couldn't get into his hotel room in time. Sam flipped to the front of the book to find the crunch of Howard Stark's face as he punched him with his metal arm. Sam closed the book. That is a lot to carry around. The details. Bucky leaned forward and put his elbows on his knees and his face in his, into his hands. That was a very hard time. I couldn't get them out of my head. And even the good memories when I had them. My family, they were dead. Did you ever try, you know, suicide? Bucky sat back again. Yes, I did. It didn't take. Blood enough to pass out healed too quick. That wasn't what Sam wanted to hear, but Bucky had been all alone there in Romania with no one to help him through that trauma. He was tortured by his memories of the people he'd killed and drowning in the loss of everyone he knew. Just the once? Then Bucky gave one of his barely there smiles. When I woke up, there was a fur furry thing at my neck and it was vibrating. Vibrating? Purring, Sam. She was thin and didn't have her front claws. I figured she couldn't hunt that way, so I brought her food and water every night, and we'd visit for a while. Keeping her alive became my way of staying alive. What happened to her? She was in the park, Bucky replied. The raid was in my apartment. I didn't return to either one. I just have to hope someone else looked after her or that she really could hunt without claws. Then it hit him. Of course! A pet! Bucky was probably very lucky a cat had found him then, but there was no reason he couldn't have one now. And pets were therapeutic. Sam put the books back on the stack. Get your shoes on. We gotta go somewhere. Where? Bucky asked, but he did start putting on his shoes. You just got back. You'll see. And don't forget your wallet, Mr. Moneybags. You're paying. It took nearly a half an hour for Bucky to pick his new kitten, or maybe it was the other way around. She was a tripod kitten. She'd lost one front leg to a birth defect that had to, had to be amputated. She was all white with green eyes. Her name was Alpine, and she was a, a hit at the pet store when they went to buy supplies. Sam texted a photo of the two of them at the shelter to Dr. Rayner and picked up a book about raising kittens by someone calling herself the Kitten Lady. Even though Bucky had paid for everything, Sam was feeling magnanimous and let Bucky use his new driver's license on the way home. The boys were very likely going to freak out, so he texted Sarah, heads up, there'd be a new resident in the house. Bucky finished setting up the cat box, cat tree, cat bed, scratching post, food and water, then scattered a few toys on the floor of his room. He closed the door to give her a small space to get used to, just like the book said. Then he opened the carrier and waited for Alpine to step out. It took a good ten minutes, but he didn't rush her. He sat on the floor in front of his futon and near the carrier. Then he picked up the kitten book and started reading where he'd left off. He noticed a white paw gingerly step out, followed by a nose and a little face. 
he couldn't help but uh, the smile on his face. The little cat in Bucharest was just a nightly visitor, really, but she had saved his life. This little one was going to live with him, and he felt he was returning the favor by rescuing her from the shelter who had rescued her from the streets. Still, he kept reading, waiting for her to come to him. She wasn't one of the most boisterous kittens at the shelter. She had hung back while the others bounced around his legs and batted at his shoelaces. But after about fifteen minutes, she decided he was safe to investigate. He noticed her missing leg, but it was healed over and didn't seem to hamper her movements. She'd done quite a bit of sniffing him before deciding his lap was nice and warm. She had lounged on his lap, lazily batting at a toy he wiggled in front of her, and she purred. He remembered waking to that vibration, disappointed but intrigued. She was all the way out of the carrier now. She nudged his arm, so Bucky petted her, and she leaned into it. Then she left him to explore the toys on the floor. She returned for some more pets, then went over to the cat box and snipped the litter there. Again, she returned, like she needed the reassurance he gave her that the area was safe. She got farther each time and finally started eating the food he'd set out. She drank some water, then started batting at the toys. She hadn't played much of the shelter with all the other kittens causing chaos, but now she seemed happier in this quieter environment. He rolled a jingling ball, and she chased after it and played a little soccer with herself. After ten minutes or so of that, she grew tired and plopped herself down on his legs and started cleaning. The laptop started chiming, and he realized it was time for his appointment with Dr. Rayner. Fortunately, the laptop was under the futon, so he could reach it. He sat it on the floor to the side so not, as not to disturb Alpine. Well, there she is, Dr. Rayner said. Sam sent me a text. I don't think I've ever seen you smile genuinely before. You look downright happy. I had a little cat in Romania, he told her. Visited with her in the park every evening. She found me after I tried to commit suicide. Keeping her alive kept me alive. I was going to ask at some point, but since you brought it up... She smiled, though. But let's not lose that smile yet. What happened to the cat? It happened to me, not her. Bucky stroked Alpine while he spoke. The raid, getting arrested, activated the fight in the airport, Siberia. I never got back there. Tell me about this one. Bucky gently scratched under his chin, and Alpine purred and closed her eyes. We're just getting to know each other, really. I've never lived with a cat. The other was in the park. This is new. I think there are some unwritten rules about cat ownership, such as when one is on your lap, you are not permitted to move or disturb her. You, sir, are stuck. What's her name? Alpine, because she's all white. Is she missing a leg? I only see three. Bucky rubbed the space where Alpine's other leg would have been. Birth defect. Had to be amputated, but the shelter said it doesn't slow her down at all. Rainer nodded. I've seen three-legged cats and dogs on YouTube. It won't. Honestly, I don't know why we didn't think about getting you a pet sooner. They're good for you. They offer unconditional love and relieve stress. They make us smile. But let's open up the reason you needed that other cat in Romania. What led you to suicide? Bucky sighed. The notebooks were still in a stack on the futon. He had to reach awkwardly up behind and to the side as Alpine had fallen asleep. He was stuck after all. He managed to grab a few. What didn't, he asked in return. These are memories. Sam brought them back from Vienna today. It started simple enough. Write down what I remember so I'd have it in case they took my memory again. But then I started feeling different about some of them. The earlier memories were written in the front of the books. The new things I learned went there too. But the Winter Soldier, he went into the back. I wrote about Steve and my family, the war and the Howleys in the front. I wrote about the missions in the back. 
He showed her the one he had picked up, the front memories right side up, the back memories flipped. First, it was just lists of names and potential dates, but as I remembered more, it was details, a lot of details. I was drowning in it. The murders, of course, but even the other memories. It was too late. They were all gone. My family, my friends, only Steve, and he wasn't there. The loss is very understandable. I'm sorry for that. They kept you so long. And she generally looked sorry. But the guilt, James. I wish you'd never remembered your missions. They were never your fault. You were the weapon Hydra used to murder all those people. I don't think any of them lost sleep over any of it. Certainly not over the man they kept erasing to keep you as their weapon. You lose sleep because you're a good man. Do you believe me when I say that? That you were a good man? Bucky nodded, but it was a war he was continually fighting. Most of the time... That's still new, you know. Were you a good man when you worked three jobs during the Depression? When you saved Steve from bullies or went to war? Were you a good man when you fought the Nazis and Hydra? Of course, but that was easy. That was my default, I suppose. Though, as a soldier, I was more concerned about not getting shot and keeping my men alive. Until I was captured, anyway. Our captors were definitely not the good guys, so that meant we were. After that, we were fighting the bad guys with Steve, so yeah... Good, Rainer nodded. Were you a good man when you fell? When they replaced your arm? Were you a good man when they tortured you, experimented on you? Yes, Bucky whispered. It was somewhere after that when good and bad became fuzzy. Her voice softened. And if you were an evil man, would they have had to torture you, brainwash you, take your memory? He remembered the five, the kill squad given the serum from Howard Stark. They hadn't had to be persuaded, even. They'd never had the machine. They were Hydra already. That made him hangry. I sometimes wish that computer Zola was still around so I could ask him why he chose me. Why not one of their own goons? Surely it was more expensive, more effort. He couldn't finish. Good points. More money, more effort to convert a good man into a killing machine than a willing participant. Maybe it was simply that Zola had started getting somewhere with you in the factory, and then you figuratively fell in onto his doorstep. Maybe it was so experimental he didn't want to risk one of his own goons. Why not? Bucky argued. It wasn't that they cared about their own men. They'd kill them or use them for cannon fodder if it furthered their plans. Or they must have trusted Howard Stark's serum because they awarded five of their best killers with it. Good point again. But all we have is conjecture. The unfortunate truth is that they did pick you. And because you are a good man, they had to exert more effort, spend more resources, and erase James Buchanan Barnes. And to maintain their control of you, they did it over and over. Bucky thought of the five again, the fight he lost, and getting Karpov to safety. There was another reason. One Steve spoke up. His anger melted. There was another reason. The serum makes you more of yourself. Good becomes better, bad becomes worse. When they gave the serum to their goons, they couldn't control them. They became a threat. They put them on ice and left them there. Zemo ended them. James, do you think if they'd only replaced the arm you lost, healed you, and offered you the serum, that you would have gone with them willingly? Never, he answered quickly. I tried to kill as many of them as I could after they gave me the serum, and I was an amnesiac at the time. Right, you would have fought your way out, taken Steve's place, fighting the good fight until Steve returned or you could, and you could retire or fight alongside him. 
So you were always a good man. They had to erase you, not just your memories, to get the win their winter soldier. That guilt never belonged to you. But you were drowning in that and the loss. Take me through it. I wasn't sleeping, wasn't eating, wasn't being vigilant or taking care of myself. On my 99th birthday, I went to the park under a willow tree. I placed my notebooks beside me, took a knife, and slit my wrist. Deep. I passed out from blood loss and hoped that was it. But you didn't die, she surmised. I heal fast, he stated, still a little chagrined. Maybe I should have tried a vertical slice from elbow to wrist, but yes, I didn't die. I woke up, and there was this little cat purring at my neck. On his lap, Alpine changed positions and covered her face with her paw. You didn't take her home. Bucky smiled lightly. I don't know if she ever thought of herself as my cat, but I was the one who brought food and water every evening. She was declawed, so I told myself she couldn't hunt. She needed me to do that, to bring her food, so I did. Each day I went to work, then I went to the park. I'd wait for her, and she'd come, eat and drink, and spend a little time with me. It became a ritual, Rayner pointed out. You needed that motivation. Bucky nodded. I reasoned she'd starve if I didn't, so I couldn't try again. Did the ritual work? Bucky nodded. It was kind of gradual, but I'd worked my way back to living, you know. I looked after myself, slept, nightmares and all, ate better as well as I could with the money I managed. I talked to people. He smiled again as he remembered. I was buying plums in the market when everything went sideways. The smile faded. I couldn't leave my notebook, so I went back to my apartment. Steve was there, then the GS9, then Black Panther, then Zemo. Well, I'm glad none of them managed to kill you and that I got a chance to know you. You are a good man, and I'm glad you have that little baby to take care of. She's going to teach you joy, James. Just you wait. As if on cue, Alpine woke up, stretched, and bounded up the cat tree to look out the window. Rayner spoke again, and he looked back at the laptop. She has a good start on bonding with you. She's going to show you that you are worthy of love, and she's going to remind you how to play. Those are good things. She may also help you stay present when we talk about difficult things, such as how you feel about getting those notebooks. I didn't forget what was in them, so they don't hurt more for being here, if that's what you're aiming at. He put the notebooks back on the stack. Something was nagging at him, and he felt he needed to get it out. Hydra took my memories, good and bad, all of them, again and again and again. Those notebooks are my memories, and you're wrong about the mission memories. I want to remember them. Those victims deserve to be remembered. Hydra may have used me to kill them, but I'm the last one who can remember them. Remembering sucks sometimes, sure, but it's a privilege I don't want to lose again. There was one last notebook, the first. Sam was interested in this one, the first, what it was like when I first started remembering. I ate microwavable beef stroganoff and had a memory of a moment with my mother and sisters, but I didn't know they were my mother and my sisters. I didn't know what to call things that hadn't been part of my mission, my last mission. A 5,000-piece puzzle with no picture. You had to take it piece by piece. It was strange, he admitted. I had to pretend to be a person, but I wasn't even sure how. But now I've got enough pieces in some places that I can run them together, fill good chunks of time. And you're still finding new pieces? He nodded. I remember how sick I was after the factory. I thought I'd just marched in with Steve to camp. But there were days I lost. I'd gotten stronger since he found me. I thought I'd be fine. One minute, Steve and I are, were sliding down the roof of the burning factory. The next, 
We were talking to Dum Dum and Frenchie and the others, and my legs got weak. I felt queasy, then it all went black. Everybody thought I was going to die. Steve was beside himself. I don't remember that. I remember Dum Dum telling me after. They put me in the truck with the wounded, said I was in and out. I was apparently hallucinating again. Again? Zola and his cronies were pumping me full of who knows what. You know, it wasn't terrible at first. I was all busted up and sick with pneumonia when they took me to the lab. The injections cured the pneumonia, healed my wounds. It was odd feeling my bones moving around. They got excited by that. They'd cut me and inject me to see if it would heal. Sometimes I just felt sick and dizzy. I might be burning up or freezing, but yeah, I saw things. It was probably adrenaline after Steve freed you. The stakes were high, the factory burning. You needed to get out, but once out and safe, the adrenaline wore off. You were sick again. Apparently, I was even bleeding from my ears. I had marks all up my arms, my back, but I woke up on the third day feeling much better. Steve and the others took some convincing, but I was right beside Steve when we marched into camp. Did the medics check you out? Yeah, because Dum Dum couldn't keep his mouth shut. Bucky said, shaking his head. Last thing I wanted was getting poked and prodded again, and I was afraid they'd send me home, and I half hoped they would. But they didn't find anything except the dried blood in my ears. No marks, nothing weird about my blood. They asked me what Zola did, but I couldn't tell them much. He didn't exactly talk to me about what he was doing, and when he did talk, it was in German. Did you feel there was something different still? Bucky shook his head again. I worried about it, but no, I didn't feel any different until I fell off a mountain and didn't die. From your story, you weren't unscathed. You were broken pretty badly, lost an arm. She'd read the stories he'd written and let Sam read. He'd allowed Sam to scan them and send them to her. I also wrote that I was in and out, fragments of memories anyway. I get that this is, a, is hard for you, but the more you speak of it, the less painful it will be. Were you scared once you realized you were a prisoner again? If I'd just been a POW, probably not. But it was Hydra. It was Zola. You hoped Steve would come for you. Bucky nodded. I couldn't do much to save myself, so it had to come from outside. And he had rec rescued me the first time when I thought he was still safe in Brooklyn. Were you angry that he didn't come? Bucky gave that some thought. Angry? No. I still hoped. Even when I couldn't remember my own name. When they told me he was dead, though, that's when I lost hope. And then they erased my memories, so... Rainer raised her eyebrows. That was two years of torture, experimentation, and conditioning in about three sentences. The story was present. It was raw. Let's try something. Read me that story, but for every he or his, use I and my. Bring it into first person. He was you. Oh, he didn't want to do that. Writing it down was very different from reading it out loud. He dreaded it, but he'd made a promise to try to really do the work, and she had kept up her side of the bargain. No more passive-aggressive note-writing, no just-be-happy crap. So he unfolded himself from the floor and moved the, removed the new notebook from his dresser. He put the laptop on the stack of notebooks and sat back on the futon. He opened the notebook to the first page. Pain pushed its way past his, my, unconscious mind. That one changed word made it so much harder. It drowned out my other senses until I couldn't ignore it. He could remember the feeling of that pain, the cold as he lay broken on the ground, 
A little weight dropped onto his lap. It was warm and vibrating. He stroked the kitten with his flesh hand and held the book with his vibranium one. He kept reading. My eyes opened and my lungs cried out for breath. There was an odd rattling sound and I wearily turned my eyes to find the threat. My head wouldn't turn right and everything hurt so much I didn't want to move. Puts you there, doesn't it? Broken, cold, in pain, wary, afraid. All of that is to be expected for a man who fell off a mountain and didn't die. Think about that man lying there. He, you, felt all those things. Finish the scene. Two more paragraphs. Bucky took a breath before he continued. I couldn't keep my eyes open. The ragged, rattling sound remained. There were tears welling in his eyes. Alpine climbed a bit and pushed into his chest. The incredible pain remained. I couldn't feel my arms or legs or torso, just that agony. I couldn't think through it or I might have realized that rattling sound was my breath. I might have wondered how I'd survived it all. When he, I, opened my eyes again, I saw a mountain rising higher than I could focus on. My eyes closed again until my ears registered new sounds, crunching sounds one after another. I opened my eyes again. A face above me. I didn't recognize the face. I managed one thought before it all went black again. Not Steve. Alpine licked his chin, tickling him with her rough little tongue. He petted her and she purred louder. How long were you lying in that snow, do you think? Bucky shook his head. I couldn't think and you want me to tell time? Rayner ignored the sarcasm, but, but let go of that question for another. Do you remember falling? Yes, or part of it. Do you remember landing? That piece is gone, or I haven't found it yet. I'm not looking hard for it. Her eyes were soft and her voice gentle. If I'd only known you as the Winter Soldier and I read that scene, I'd still have compassion for that man in the snow. That was when you were all alone. All your friends thought you had died. No one was looking, not even the one who found you. Bucky wiped his eyes, then resumed petting then it was probably good I couldn't think that far. If I died like everyone thought, none of the rest would have happened. I'd be that hero in the Smithsonian, the first exhibit anyway, the one I saw on my first day, full day free. All those people I killed would still be alive, would they? He wasn't prepared for that. What? Would they be alive? Hydra wanted them dead. If they didn't have you, would they have used someone else? Well, yes. I suppose so. Maybe not as quick and efficient, but they would still have been killed. Hydra killed them. You were the weapon, she repeated. They took that broken man from the snow and abused him, robbed him of his memory and agency, his humanity, and they used him to kill whoever they wanted. You were an exceptional weapon, but just a weapon to them. That man, you, were a victim of Hydra, the one they kept alive. And that means you are not just a victim, James. You're a survivor. Perhaps you can feel compassion for that man you were in the snow and all he would suffer, what he would be forced to do, what he would remember. He did. It was easier now. Easier now he knew someone else felt it. Several someone else's, not just Steve. Easier now that Sam was his friend, that Sarah and the boys accepted him, that this little kitten who barely knew him was snuggling against his neck. He couldn't say all that, though. He just nodded. 
She's going to be good for you, I think, Rainer said. Try reading some more. To yourself, but still out loud. It gives it life. Use the first person. Connect with that man who was you. Compassion was something he was very short on. Share it with him. With yourself. I'll check back with you next week. Have a good week, James. She winked out, and Bucky saw his ref own reflection in the laptop screen. New tears had slipped loose and run down his cheeks. He clumsily wiped them away, trying not to dislodge the cat. She batted at his fingers and gave him a little bite. He'd gotten far enough in the kitten book to know it was good to play with your kitten. He broke the rule and placed Alpine on the floor. He reached for a wand toy and whipped it around. Soon she was jumping and he was laughing at her antics. He would try reading more because he'd promised he'd do the work of therapy, but right now the kitten was providing her own form of therapy. Laughter was something he'd been short on too. So that was A Tale of Two Cats and Other Stories. So, the first cat comes from Learning to Live. I did read the first pieces and Learning to Live in the podcast. They make their own little series called The Time Between Series, and they cover the two years between, between Captain America Winter Soldier and Captain America Civil War. So... We hear about Bucky's first day, Sam, as he tells Sam, he's telling him the events of the first pieces. And then when he tells him about the cat in Romania, he's talking about, and his suicide attempt, he's talking about, you know, what happened in learning to live. And that was where we go with uh, Rainer as well. And, and, well, first, before Rainer, uh, Sam gets him a cat. Now... I am a cat person, so I think everyone should have a cat, but that isn't why I put a cat in the show, or in the story. Um, sorry, not in the show. He's never had a cat in the show, which is a shame. He's had one in the comics. I am not a comic book fan. I am not a Bucky in the comics fan, but I did read one ep uh, issue, episode, whatever, because my husband told me he had a cat, and I wanted to see Bucky with a cat. And he had a little white cat called Alpine. So I'm like, well, that gives me license to put a cat in this story. <laughs> I've got to get Bucky a cat, a little white cat named Alpine. And Al there's an Alpine in The Path Not Taken. She's a little different. She is white, but she's got one green eye, one blue eye, and she's deaf. This one is a little tripod kitty. She's lost an arm, and she has green eyes, and she's not deaf, so, and she's younger. So there's a difference, but Alpine is in both stories. So both Buckies get an Alpine. So this little kitty, I used the story of her exploration from my big kitty, who wasn't big at the time. The day I, bought, I brought Vinya home, we call him Vinny for short. Vinya is peach in Polish, and I probably didn't pronounce it well, but we have a tradition of unusual pet names in my family, so there you are. Um, he was a little guy, a little fuzzy gray guy. In this room, those are the room we started him out, that one I'm recording in. And I was in here with him, and he'd explore a little bit and come back. And he'd explore a little farther and come back. And they'd explore a little farther and come back for more snuggles, just like he needed 
my reassurance each time he got a little farther into the room and finally explored everything, but he kept coming back to me for that reassurance. So I used that in the introduction of this kitty to this room. And I hope that I've given her, her some very cat-like things that she does because I am a cat owner and I have cats and I've had cats pretty much all my life and we've got four right now and we foster kittens so I kind of hopefully know how they behave. Um, so I hope I make her out uh, to be a, a three-dimensional real cat. Then there's Rainer's uh, session. Now remember that I had written long com conversations between her and Bucky that never made it into a story. Well, I'm so glad it just kind of worked its magic into this one. And it, I think it came out beautifully. It didn't cover everything in those long conversations, but it did catch on to the compassion. Having compassion for himself, for what he suffered to be the Winter Soldier. For what he suffers now, remembering what he did as the Winter Soldier. Because, yeah, he needs that. And compassion is something he did not get as the Winter Soldier. From the moment he fell and was found to the moment he was rescued. There was no compassion for him. Nobody showed compassion. So, yeah, I wanted to bring that in. And so I think I've made Rainer a better therapist than she was in the show. And I think um, the therapist may read that or hear that and go, hmm, well, there's still some pointers I could do. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I'm not a therapist and I've done my best here. And I think uh, I feel like she did well. And then I had the idea, you know, that she would have him read the first part of the asset with the first person which you know he wrote it in for third person to distance himself from that pain so reading it out loud in first person owns it he has to own it it was him not this other person who suffered that it was him so I do imagine he went on to read the rest of it in first person and had a tough time. And maybe he kept reading. I don't know. I haven't written, I haven't written all that yet. And I don't have to write every moment. But we can kind of see where he's at at this time. He's gotten... He's had the memories of the events of those first three stories. The asset, the next stage, and strong. He can't have the one about his greatest achievement because that was not in his point of view. And he was wiped so many times during that story that I don't know Bucky could have a point of view on that. So that can't ever be in his journals. I mean, he might at some point have written about some strange man who kept saying incongruous words. I don't know. But <laughs> I don't see how to make his greatest achievements, anything Bucky could write. 
Um, I do think it's an interesting story in my take on how he was programmed with the 10 words using Dr. Fenhoff from Agent Carter who had a hypnotic voice. And so he could hypnotize people into doing things. And so they used it a little differently to make him the Winter Soldier. But it's through that hypnosis that he's triggered with those four, ten words. Um, so that was a tale of two cats and other stories. <laughs> so it's a tale of two cats, comma, and other stories. Because he doesn't just talk about the cats. He talks about the other things, too. And I do think also it so, shows some growth because he said it is easier, well, he thought it is easier now to have compassion for himself because other people do, not just Steve. Before, his entire self-worth was wrapped up in what Steve Rogers thought of him. And you hear that in the second episode of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier when they have that really weird counseling scene with couples counseling scene with, with Sam and it finally comes out and the way that Sebastian Stan played it and his voice broke when he said because if he was wrong about you then he was wrong about me and that was it that was the crux maybe Steve was wrong about him and his entire self-worth was on the line It was, it was raw. It was so sad. <laughs> but by the fifth episode and the sixth episode, he's starting to, to come around to other people seeing that he's a good man and saying so. They thanked him when he got the people out of the truck. They thanked him. He wasn't quite sure how to take that because he hadn't had that. He hadn't had somebody thanking him. And that was beautiful. So he's coming. It's getting easier, but it's a continual war to, to, to believe that he's a good man. But he's getting there. So this story shows, even though he has to work on it, even though it's still traumatic, even though it's still hard, he's in a better place than he was in Healing Hurts. And he's in a better place than he was in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So I kind of like this, this story. I don't want to end all his trauma. It's not that easy. You don't just remember these things and you're done. And as he said, he relive, relives them over, you know, over. And they might be a little bit different in a dream or something, but they're still, they're still there. They still come. Just because he's gotten them all out doesn't mean they end. So he can still be tortured by these memories. So the asset still hurts. Because he has to, you know, reading it, he has to relive it. But, as she said, the more you get it out, the less power it has over you in the present. So the pain eventually makes its way to being in the past and not torturing you in the, in the future or in the present time. And, you know, that's where therapy has helpful. So, honestly, just having 
this is a kind of personal thing, and I want to I want to go ahead and say it because I want the people out there who are struggling to maybe hear it. There's something to be said for just being heard. When you have a therapist who gets it, you got to find the right therapist. But the therapist who gets it and hears you, and you feel heard and validated that these things did happen. It took me going to see the therapist who actually saw my children because the things that I went through with my children were extreme, out of the norm. And most people don't get it, which is why I'm not going to detail it here. My own family members don't get it. Other therapists didn't get it. But my kids' therapist, she got it. She knew what the kids were like. That's her, her specialty. And she knew what my kids did because she was their therapist. So she was never going to say, well, that didn't happen. You're seeing it wrong. She was never going to say, you're imagining things. You were causing it. Because I wasn't causing it. Their birth parents caused it. But so much of the outside world who doesn't live with these, you know, kids like ours thinks that, you know, it's the parents to blame. When it maybe isn't. Um so when there are kids who do terrible things out there, don't automatically think that it's the parents. There's one who took a gun to school more recently. His parents tried to get that gun away from him. They tried to give it to the police. They gave it to a family member, the family member. Somehow that, that gun got back to that kid and he killed people. And the police have even said that parents did everything right. Still didn't stop it. So it's not always the parents' fault. Sometimes it is. Not always. So until you find out more details, don't just blame the parents. But if you feel that you have trauma in your past that you cannot get past, that is affecting your relationships, maybe your job. Please find a therapist who can get it. And if you try one and they don't get it, try another. Because once you have somebody who gets it, who hears you, that's the start. And then a good therapist can lead you then into healing if you do the work, all right? I had that last bit because, you know, we took my kids to therapy all the time, but they wouldn't do the work. They didn't think they needed it. So therapy only works when you know you need it and you do the work, but it does work. It is good and it shouldn't be a stigma. It should be encouraged. 
So I encourage it. All right. On that note, I will close and go back to thinking about what's next in my chapter for finding home so that I can write some more tomorrow with NaNoWriMo Day 14. So far, 13 days in, I'm doing good. I am holding the line. I am making my goal. If not the 1200 a day, the overall goal, I am ahead. And it is good to be writing so much. Um, but I do look forward to December where I don't have to write every day. <laughs> I got to do things like perm my hair and I'm kind of behind on doing the budget. And <laughs> I have lots of things because I have to write, I have to write, I have to write, I have to write. But the pressure of I have to write, I have to write, I have to write is making me write. So it's good and bad, I guess. All right. Till next time. Please keep listening. Please keep writing if you're a writer. And you can catch me out there on the Internet, just not on Twitter anymore. I'm on Mastodon. And I am still in Hildi. So I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I. -E you can also email in Hildi, I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I -E at gmail.com. All right. Bye for now.